Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Beautiful Community. As the image of the Trinity, the church is called to be the beautiful community of unity and diversity. And everything we need to accomplish this has been given to us by God so that we might overflow with blessing for others. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. We're going to be looking today at the idea of humble servanthood as we continue looking at the beautiful community. What uh, it means that the church is drawing our life from the Trinity, one God eternally existed in three persons, and how that works out in our life, how it would be beautiful before our watching world. Today we're going to be looking at humble servanthood. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. You can read along on the screen. I'll be using the New International Version. Hear the word of the sovereign God. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was a day that shocked people and there, was, there, there were tears shed, there was crying, people couldn't understand what was happening. Of course, I'm speaking of the day that the announcement was made that the Beatles had broken up. They were, they were no longer going to be making music together. Despite the fact that, uh, to quote Larry Norman in his quip, uh, just shortly, a, a year or two before, they had sung, All You Need Is Love, they were done. They were broken up. And you may not like the Beatles, and I'll pray for you if you don't, but uh, you've probably been through this where either a music group you liked or uh, a sports team you liked that was together and it seemed like everything was okay, suddenly they not only were not performing together, very often they couldn't even get in the same room with one another anymore. People who had been the best of friends could no longer talk to one another. How does this happen? And, and why does it seem, I mean, if you follow much with music groups or sports teams, this is not the exception this is the rule. 
This happens over and over again. And they always give different reasons. They always talk about it differently. But what it really breaks down to is we human beings have a problem with staying unified. And in fact, this was going on in the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi is in many ways a model church. Paul doesn't really have to correct them doctrinally. He's not upset because they're abandoning the gospel like the church at Galatia. Paul commends them that time and again they had supported him. And he was actually only there for a very short period of time. But the one problem that is cropping up in Philippi is disunity. Why did that happen? And what does Paul say is the way forward? Because the same thing that was happening at Philippi is why the Beatles broke up or whatever band you like broke up or whatever sports team you like couldn't stay together. At the root of it all is a lack of humility. So let's dive into our text. Now, we begin by talking about the Trinity and unity and diversity, which we've been kind of, it's kind of a theme in this series. And notice this passage is once again built upon the Trinity. Philippians 2, 1 to 11 is a unit that hangs together. And notice it begins and ends with Trinitarian references. So in verse 1, Paul says, if you've got any encouragement from being united with Christ, In verse 2, he speaks of fellowship with or in the Spirit, and he concludes the section by saying all this comes to the glory of God the Father. Christ, Spirit, and God the Father. Once again, Paul's going to be making an appeal to unity. And make no mistake, even this great passage that we've written songs about, we're also familiar with about Jesus being in very nature God and humbling himself, Paul is speaking this theology to say, you need to follow this example because there needs to be unity among you. But the unity that is envisioned is once again a Trinitarian unity. Christ, Spirit, God the Father. The grand appeal to unity is built on the life, the example, the experience we see in the Holy Trinity, and therefore we should expect to see unity and diversity. Now clearly this whole passage is about an appeal to unity. Notice all the words that Paul uses in verses 1 and 2. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, he could have said some other phrase, but he picks out united with Christ. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit or in the Spirit, uh, then I want you to be like-minded. I want you to be one in spirit and purpose. Paul is in many ways, he's kind of writing a letter to thank the Philippians for giving him money, but it finally comes out later on in chapter four where he names two people who are not getting along and he says, I'm making an appeal. You need to sit down with one another. You need to be one. And the whole church I'm making an appeal to that to be in Christ, to walk with the Spirit means that there is going to be a diversity, but that diversity needs to find unity. You need to walk with one another. And so notice here that again, as we've seen in previous weeks, our unity, he does not appeal to the Philippians and say, you all think the same, you've got the same background, you know, this whole church is only Jewish or it's only Gentile. Paul says, here's the basis for unity. You are united with Christ. You have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You are experiencing the comforting love of Jesus Christ. Christ. There is 
tenderness and compassion that you have received from God. I remember when I was a young believer and I first memorized, I actually memorized all of Philippians 2, 1 through 18, and I was so struck because anybody who would look at this and say, I have no encouragement, I am not united with Christ, I, I don't have any comfort of his love, there's no fellowship with the Spirit, and there is no tenderness and compassion, the response would be, then you're not a believer. If you are a believer, these things mark your life. And so Paul knows he's on firm ground. He's saying, if you are a believer, you have experienced this. I'm describing your experience, and I'm saying, if this is true, if you have this common experience in the gospel, you need to walk in unity with one another, because what unites you is greater than what divides you. But once again, notice Paul here is realistic in the same way we've seen in the other text. There are immediately also diversity. Here he uses the language of diverse interests. So in verse 4 he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, by interest, the NIV is translated that way. He's not talking about, well, I like this hobby, you like that hobby. I like this musical group, you like that musical group. Paul's talking about your affairs, your things, the, the stuff of your life, what your life is composed of. You have your things, affairs, matters, interests, the, the, the stuff of your life, and I have mine. And it's always going to be that way. Being a Christian does not cease that. There's diversity because each of us has our own interests, our own desires, our own way of looking at things. And as we've seen in recent weeks, this isn't something that is a flaw. It's part of the very design of God. So that true beauty, true health, true flourishing require both unity and diversity. Paul does not say, stop having your own interests. He says, you're going to have your own interests, but you're going to have to walk in unity in the midst of that. So the question's going to come, how do we do that? Because see, at the end of the day, whatever other language they want to use, you know why all those groups break up? They break up because they're more interested in their own interest, their own way of doing things. It ultimately boils down to pride. That's why they end up, whatever else they call it, it's ultimately, I want my way. And you're not getting along with my way, so we're going to part ways. So Paul says, you've got your own interest. How are you going to walk? And so he talks to us about self-interest, humility, and the example of Christ. So notice again in verse 4, it says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now see, here's the problem that we have. It's not that you have your interest and that I have mine. It's that my natural bent for every one of us is to look to my own interest and to do it in a way that I don't care if it comes at your expense. I don't care if it costs you. This is my way. This is my right. This is what I want. We all look out for number one. You don't have to be encouraged to look out for your own interest. You come out of the womb doing it. How many mothers that are around would say, I had to teach my child to scream when they got hungry or their diaper was... I mean, when a child's not happy, who knows it? 
Everybody, right? Life is an experience of learning that every time I have a need, I don't need to scream and shout and make everybody aware of my need. Because all of us run after our own interest. Now, this isn't just my opinion. We can see Paul comes back to this same phrase a little bit later to speak to the Philippians. Notice how he puts it regarding Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. He's speaking of Timothy, and he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare for everyone. Who in here is included in everyone? Everyone. Everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So notice, Paul is back to the same thing, his own interest. Same language as in verse 3 and 4. So Paul's making a note here, and he says, look, I want you to understand something. Timothy is odd because Timothy doesn't look out for his own interest. And here's my experience. The Spirit-inspired apostle says, Everybody looks out for their own interest. And not only do we look out for our own interest at the expense of other people's interest, Paul says we do it at the expense of the interest of Christ. Now that should be an ouch. Everyone, this is our tendency. You and I both came out of the womb bent. And my bend is I want everyone to do it my way. And so the quick thought that says, I'm not like this, should make me really suspicious. Because the Word of God says you are. And it says, I am. This is my bent. We have a tendency to make ourselves the center of the universe. Here's one thing you and I have in common. I want to be the center of the universe, and I want everything to revolve around me, and so do you. Francis Schaeffer, uh, the, the great Christian philosopher and theologian, said this, Since the fall of man, we do not want to deny ourselves. Actually, we do everything we can, whether it is in a philosophic sense or a practical sense, to put ourselves at the center of the universe. This is where we naturally want to live. I was just, I'm reading through Francis Shaver this year, and I happened to come across this quote like two weeks ago in reading, and I was like, this is exactly what I'm going to be talking about in Philippians chapter 2. Notice what Shaver says. If you're a philosopher, you create an entire philosophy that the end goal is, I'm the center of the universe. Everything's around me. Everybody make it all about me. He says, if you're not a person given to philosophy and intellectual pursuits, you do the same thing practically. You just come up with a way that says, everything's supposed to be about me. And all of us do that. It is our natural bent. The idolatrous tendency that we all have is to my own self-interest. Even at the expense of others or even at the expense of the cause of Christ. Because this is the way I like it. And that's the way I want it to be. And it undermines any chance of the church experiencing and walking in Trinitarian, Trinitarian unity and diversity.
And friends, our culture has just put this natural tendency on steroids. We make everything about me and the way I want it. And you and I can be together until you say or do something that makes me suspect you don't really think I'm the center of the universe. Now, I, I mean, you know, I've got a master's degree in this stuff. I can come up with Bible verses. I can give a good sounding philosophical reason why that's not what I'm doing. But at the end of the day, that's what I'm doing. I want to put myself first. So what's the antidote to this? Paul tells us it is humility. It is humility. So notice in verses 3 and 4, he puts it this way, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And that word literally means empty conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Selfish ambition and vain conceit are ever-present dangers, poisons that seep into our soul. And they often masquerade as some kind of legitimate looking after my own needs. But what they really are is sinful attempts to prioritize my own interest, my own wants, my own desires above everybody else. What really matters is what I think, what I like, what I want, what I feel. And so notice what Paul says is, here's the antidote. It's humility. You put others ahead of yourself. Now, it's important we understand humility is not about a false notion of my lack of worth, but rather about taking the focus off of me and my desires and prioritizing the needs, wants, and desires of others. Humility is not, I just, I'm going to try and feel bad about who I am. Humility is, I'm not really thinking about myself at all. My focus is on somebody else and what their needs are, what their wants are, what their experiences are, what their pains and griefs and sorrows are rather than my own. And, and this is how Paul develops it. Notice in verse 4, he immediately says, start looking to the interest of others. There's a quote that's very often attributed to C.S. Lewis. Uh, I myself have in the past, but it's actually not from Lewis. It's actually from Rick Warren. Uh, and the quote is this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's not me trying to say, oh, I'm really, I'm really nothing. Everybody's better than me. It's really just saying my thoughts are actually about what does that other person's need? What, what would be good for them? How could God use me to serve them? What Lewis actually said in Mere Christianity regarding humility is this. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. Do you hear how Lewis is echoing Philippians 2? He says he's the kind of person that you come away and think, that person was actually interested in what I'm interested in. They wanted to know what was important to me. They wanted to know how they could serve and care for me. Lewis says that's what humility 
actually is. It's the frame of mind that allows me to move beyond trying to keep myself, my desires, my perspective at the center and to try to truly listen to others so that I might know what their real needs are and then be able to serve them in love. Now, this is where the example of humble servanthood comes in because, see, we do like to be the center, right? I mean, I've joked with Lennon for years. We, we actually had one time a, a, a strange situation where there was another mid named, there was a midshipman named Brett that was staying with us, and then he actually had a best friend that was coming over who was named Jeremy. So we were running into all kinds of confusion because there were two Bretts and two Jeremys in our house a lot of weekends. And we were trying to figure out how to solve this, and I told Linda, there's a simple way. You refer to the mid as Brett and just call me master. That'll work. My wife did not respond very well to that suggestion. She had some words as to how dumb that suggestion actually was. Now, I was kidding around with her, but what's your tendency in mind? What, how do we want other people to treat us? I'm the center. You, you need to recognize my needs are what matters. So what Paul tells us is, here's what you look at, Jesus. This is the way out. Philippians 2.5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So notice here, Paul says Jesus is doing what what is known theologically as his descent, as his humiliation. He is God, and he decides to become human. And then Paul says, even as a human, he humbles himself, and even in his own humbling, he submits himself to death, and not just any death, the most vile form, the most humbling form of death, death on a cross. And so Paul says that Jesus, being in very nature God, humbles himself. Now, it's important for us to understand, Paul is not saying Jesus gave up his deity. That's actually heresy. Jesus did not give up his deity. He didn't give up one ounce of his deity. So what did he actually give up? What he gave up every moment of every day was the right to invoke his divine rights. Think about it, all the way down to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there with Peter, and you remember Peter strikes off the sword and everything, and what does Jesus say to him? Don't you realize I could right now, I have the right to call 12 legions of angels, they'll come in and they'll do this whole place, and I would be perfectly right. But Paul says Jesus does not exercise those rights because contrary to our American philosophy, it is not a matter of my rights. If Jesus had exercised his rights, you would be hellbound, and so would I. What was right was for him to remain in heaven, not to come to earth. What was right was for him to exercise the full rights of deity. What was right was for him not to die for you and me. 
But thanks be to God, he did not exercise those rights. If he had, you and I would be without God and without hope in the world. As God, Jesus has every right not to humble himself, not to live as a human, not to submit to death. Humility is the fact that he did not exercise his rights. He willingly laid them down. If you understand what I'm saying, you realize this is as countercultural as it gets for us. This is not what we are taught. This is not the way we want to live. And can I point out, whatever rights I possess, y'all help me weigh these, my rights, the rights of the eternal Son of God, who has more rights, me or him? I, I want to hear somebody tell me. Who has more rights, me or him? Obviously, he does. So is it even possible for me to begin to give up rights comparable to what he did? It's not. And I want you to notice, Paul is not preaching this in a way that he's saying, well, of course, he's working redemption for you, so there's nothing like... Paul's whole point is, this is a way you can walk like Jesus. You can't save humanity. What you can do is forsake your rights just like he did. And know that your rights, whatever you do and you forsake, will be far smaller than anything he has ever done. Now, let's be honest. Here's the question that should be going on in your mind right now if you're paying attention. If I do this, who's going to watch out for me? Who's going to take care of me if I'm busy taking care of everybody else? Now, if you're not asking yourself that question, you're not being honest. And Paul gives the answer. The answer is in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did not exercise his rights. He humbled himself. Who is it that exalted Christ and took care of his rights? The Father. And Paul's saying, the answer to the question of who's going to watch out for me is God's going to watch out for me. God's going to watch out for, and take care of me. God's going to be the one to protect and care for me. And notice Jesus' humble servanthood, Paul says, how many knees will bow? Every knee will bow. How many tongues will confess? Every tongue will confess. Even the enemies of God? Yes, even the enemies of God. And what brought about this glory to God? Jesus humbling himself. If I humble myself, God will care for me and exalt me. God will receive glory. And even the enemies of God could be turned into worshipers. If I don't humble myself, I'm left trying to take care of my own interest, 
trying to take care of my own needs. And what is guaranteed is there will not be glory to God. And there, I am not going to see the enemies of God turned into worshipers of God. So how do we apply this? We're going to do it very briefly. Because what I'm really trying to talk today is more of an attitude than a, a specific answer to every question. Humble servanthood in our fallen world is what God is calling for us to do. Since the fall, friends, every one of us, we want to be the center of the universe. If you're hearing me, including myself, that's where I want to be. That's the way we want to live. We want everybody else to look out for our needs, our wants, even my whims. Just this crazy idea I just had, you need to make that important. Okay, that's the way we live. And our modern uh, culture does not encourage humility. It's not after humility. It wants us to, to uh, reinforce our fallen nature, demand our every way, make everything about me, make everything about celebrity. I want my 15 minutes of fame. That's what we're encouraged. And so what is happening, if you look around us at our culture right now, is everything is degraded into the wants, desires, beliefs, and rights of each person, and you're in trouble. I mean, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's just two people being roommates in college, whether it is two friends trying to be together, or it is society at large. If it is two people both demanding to be the center, you got problems, and that's exactly what we see around us. And I wish I could say that being a Christian means we're immune to this, but it doesn't. We're not immune to it. It's part of our fallen nature, and it's reinforced every day. And so we have to remind ourselves when we're doing this and we start thinking through this, we're going to have all the questions. What about my rights? Who's going to look out for me? What if I think the other person is really wrong? I should stand up for what is right. I mean, this is a matter of truth. That's what we're all tempted to say. But the fact is, go back and look at Paul's example. Jesus is God. He had all rights in the entire universe. Jesus emptied himself of his rights and trusted the Father. And the fact is, when Jesus emptied himself of his rights, was that because you and I were on the side of truth? Did Jesus need to do what Paul describes here in Philippians 2 because Brett was right or because Brett was wrong? Did my sin and wrongness mean Jesus didn't need to humble himself and serve me? If you're a Christian, you know the answer to the question. My wrongness is why he needed to humble himself and serve me. So this attitude that we're talking about is, am I walking in this kind of humble servanthood? Life in a local church requires this. We, we cannot walk together if we don't have a humility and a willingness to serve one another. Now again, this is not talking about things that the Bible absolutely is clear. This is not saying, well, you know, Brett started teaching that Buddha was the way to God. We're, we're not talking about stuff like that. 
Okay, that's not what's at issue here. There is a faith once for all delivered to the saints, but rarely are the reasons that you and I aren't getting along something about that. It's usually neither one of us wants to humble ourselves. And so we can disagree on all kinds of things. Paul brings us up. It's so common. Read Romans 14. Read 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. And note in there, Paul's answer is, lay down your rights. Serve the other person. Paul even says when he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols, can Christians eat meat sacrifice to idols? Paul's answer is, look, I am firmly convinced by the Spirit of God. The answer to that question is yes. But when I'm with the believer who disagrees with what I know before God is true, I restrict my rights for their good. I hear Christians try and turn that text upside down so that it's always the other person's guy. And the answer is very simple. Whose rights are going to be more restricted? That's the person they restrict themselves for the good of the other. Even when Paul says, I know the answer to the question. I already know what the answer is. The answer is, yes, you could eat this meat, but I will not. Never again will I eat meat because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the, the question is this kind of attitude. Am I building this in my life? Or am I willing to empty myself of my rights? Am I willing to humble myself and put others first? I'm speaking predominantly of the church, but we can ask ourselves that question. Every marriage has this question. Every relationship between parents and children has this question. Just friendships, coworkers. This question expands out in every area. Are we going to be the kind of people who recognize this and walk in it? Now, I had prayed about how to end this, and last night at communion, I felt like the Lord showed me something. So we're going to stand together, and, and we're hoping we've got this together. We're going to have this song, All I Have is Christ. It's, it's an old worship song, and I want you to, we're going to have the lyrics pop up with it, and you can sing along if you want, or you can kind of pray it, meditate on it, but look at this. And then we'll have our benediction, but remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. And then Paul says, go and do thou likewise. So let's sing this together. Lord Jesus, when we consider all you have done for we hell-bound sinners, Lord, we stand amazed. All we have is Christ. And so, Lord, we pray you would send us forth, not to earn our salvation, but in joy and gratitude, in the midst of a world of selfish ambition and vain conceit, screaming and hollering and demanding our rights. Lord, would we be like our Lord Jesus? you would use our ransom life to spread your gospel and that its beauty, the beauty of the Holy Trinity, might be displayed in our humble servanthood. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Go forth blessed and reconciled by Jesus Christ and spread that blessing to everyone you meet. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.